my name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Raul Ruiz. One of the most impossible filmmakers we've ever tackled. <laughs> An impossible horror, if you will. Available at impossiblehorror.com. Yes, when I think <laughs> when I think filmmakers influenced by Raul Ruiz, I think of Justin DeClue's Yep, impossible film, horror. Impossible horror. But... <laughs> I say he's an impossible filmmaker in the sort of Jess Franco sets. Yes. A uh, hundred movies spanning the globe. So like a hundred feature films, but he has like shorts, he has documentaries, he's done everything. Lost films, unfinished films. Mm-hmm. There's films that are still being made or trying to be finished that he worked on right now. And he passed away in 2011. And he's an impossible filmmaker in other sense. The fact that he spent so many years in exile from his native Chile. In fact, he made the bulk of his work. He made about, I think, three or four features in Chile before uh, Pinochet came in as a dictator. And then he was out of there and he mostly spent his time in France because his films were in French. So in the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about filmmakers from countries that we haven't tackled yet. So I guess Raul Ruiz represents Chile, but he is also a man of no place. You know, the thing about Ruiz is that like his style is so particular mm. that like when I look at it I go okay this feels like it comes from a distinct auteur mm. and a distinct place it's particular but it's other yeah I mean Jonathan Rosenbaum who's written a lot about Ruiz says stuff like Ruiz is not an auteur filmmaker because he does so much stuff uh, I don't know about that uh, J-Ro well but... I was startled to learn that in the 90s he made a thriller in Hollywood starring William Baldwin <laughs> but at the same time it's like the same movie he makes over and over and over again like the same stylistic conceits and the way that he approaches something he's no Ron Howard he does not disappear into the work to deliver like an anonymous package well he's no Ron Howard right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. why, why are we even talking about him then so this is somebody you brought to the table yeah Raul Ruiz, obviously a lauded and celebrated filmmaker in some circles. I had never seen any of his films before this week. Now uh, I've seen three. Uh, so he's a filmmaker. Three out of a hundred. So I'm an expert now. <laughs> <laughs> like when I read the Johnson Rosenbaum article, I was like, what the heck is this? And I remember watching some of his films and going, what the heck is this? Because he is a filmmaker. And, you know, a lot of people when they're talking about him like to say there is no like entry film into his work. There is no like, oh, this is like the skeleton key and once you watch it you'll be like oh i can move on from there because they are all kind of baffling and when you're watching them you're going am i missing something is there like some context that i'm not getting and i think that the true way to watch raul ruiz's film is to know that he is a troll and it's kind of a joke. Okay. And that if you go in knowing that, that he's kind of just pulling your leg and that this kind of very ponderous and sometimes serious stuff he's treating as kind of a laugh, you will have more fun with it. That's interesting because I did not go in uh, with that attitude Mm -hmm. this week and I only kind of gradually figured out Mm -hmm. that that was the attitude, at least of certain of his movies, including I watched one of his films, we'll get to it later, The Hypothesis of the Stolen Painting where I watched it quite seriously thinking that it was an actual examination of real real paintings. Like a documentary. <laughs> and then and then I, I thought it was like Peter Greenaway's Rembrandt's Jacuzzi or mm-hmm. something like that. But but then I laughed it and realized, oh, these weren't real paintings. Ah, he pulled the <laughs> borge on us. <laughs> yes. And so 
you know, you watch City of Pirates, which is probably one of his most famous films. Yeah. Would you say accessible? (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) I think that it is the most in-your-face of his movies, which is why I think it's the one that gets recommended the most. It is a famously plotless film, Mm. although it does have a bit of a plot. Kind of. I mean, this is the the magic and the trolling of Ruiz, is that, like, right when you think that you have kind of a grasp on where he's going, he's going to be like, oh, now the main character's kidnapped by a bunch of other characters. Forget the previous thing. It was famously written every day after Ruiz would wake from napping. Yeah. So as best to give it a strange dream logic. The plot, such as it is, involves the main character Isidore, played by Anne Alvaro. Uh, Okay, well, first I'll say the movie opens one week before the end of the war. What war? We're not sure. Doesn't matter. Never comes up again. Never comes up again. It's a bit like, you know, in Oceana Andalou, how Mm. the first or the first minute of that Louis Benwell short film is a total non sequitur yeah. with, with everything else that comes. And also, there are no pirates in this film. There are no pirates, even though that pirates are a recurring theme in his films. And we'll get into why that is later on. But she is a troubled woman who drifts into encounters with a number of strange characters, including there's a 10-year-old boy who we meet him, and he said that he is murdered and raped, not mm-hmm. in that order, yeah. his whole family. And this 10-year-old boy becomes her fiancé. She spends a lot of time at this kind of island castle where there's an inhabitant there named Toby. He's a grown man, but he is also inhabited or he thinks he's inhabited by the spirit of his sister and his mother and several other people. Kind of a split situation. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, There are other characters, too. So, okay, it's a surrealist film. And it has a certain camp Hollywood quality to it. So the thing about Ruiz that I love the most is that he is so kind of visually opulent. I'm going to keep going back to J-Ro because he said like a lot of like the kind of textbook things about Ruiz. But like this film is shot like a very low budget Mr. Arcadin, which is funny because Mr. Arcadin is already really low budget, but like Ruiz in this film, especially within the first five minutes, it's like he's flexing like, what's the weirdest angle I can figure out? Am I going to show it through someone's mouth as they look, as someone is looking at them? I mean, he is a disciple of Wells. Mm -hmm. Wells is an acknowledged influence on him, and there are a lot of shots that are, you know, from very extreme Wellsian camera angles, you know, things in the extreme foreground. A lot of, like, waist-level shots, Mm -hmm. like, set on a table with, like, a glass in the foreground. A lot of split diopter shots that like to draw attention to the fact that they're split diopter. So, like, something is really close in the foreground, but behind it is out of focus, but on the other side of the screen it's like in deep focus and you can see everything. I was reminded too, visually, just a little bit of Dario Argento. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, a lot of uh, Louis Benwell, of course, n- not just in the visual style, but in the kind of strange quasi-comic dream yeah. quality. I mean, it. Ruiz loves his colors, like especially putting filters on stuff where no filter should exist. Well, in this particular movie, I was also reminded a lot of Alfred Hitchcock. It has this overripe Bernard Herrmann-ish score, and it has this very kind of uh, again, overripe color scheme that mm-hmm. makes me think a bit of like 1950s Hollywood. And yeah. All the characters are these very kind of extreme archetypes. I mean, I'm just referencing other movies now, but it reminds me of Joseph Losey's Boom with Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. I mean, the colors in this film like burn your eyes off. Like everyone's wearing like primary purple mm-hmm. or they go out to the sea and the sky is like bright red in a red that you've never seen before. And finally, I'm also reminded of Jess Franco. Oh, 100%. 
particularly yeah. something like the uh, the Hot Nights of Linda. You know, one of those <laughs> one of those movies where it's Lena Romay wandering around a castle mm-hmm. for ninety minutes. So. Ruiz, when he approaches his movies, like something like City of Pirates, you're going to see the same themes, like a Jess Franco film, over and over again. So there's going to be like doubling. Characters will often change roles, but it'll be the same actor, like a new actor will take over a character's role. There's going to be shifts in time, sometimes in the same shot, but you're going to be like, wait, where am I now? And you feel like Ruiz is like chuckling behind the scenes, especially when you watch like a lot of his movies, like you're like, people are going to think this means something, but it really doesn't. I'm just screwing with you. But I mean, it must mean something just in the sense of like it's not like he's making it just as a prank no like like there are heavy deep emotions here that he's tapping into well like some critics would say that like ruiz doesn't care if his movie is good or not like sometimes he just wants to put like images on screen i mean the fact that he's made over a hundred movies would indicate that he's one of those filmmakers like say franco who cares as much about the making of Of the movie yeah Yeah. and then like i'm always curious about this like how involved was he with in the editing of it because Mm -hmm. like the pieces are so all over the place that it feels like if somebody else was handed it they would be like well i don't know what this movie is City of Pirates reminded me that there's something deeply ingrained in me that I'm not crazy about. I get very upset when I if you don't understand, understand something a movie. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think I've told before about when I went to see Tarkovsky's uh, The Mirror, and I was having dinner with someone after, and I was like, I, I, I was so frustrated. I didn't even want to talk about the movie. <laughs> Tears in your eyes. You're and, like, I didn't understand. And like, they had to tell me, no, like, it's it's okay that you don't under, understand it. I think um, the frustration with me, especially watching some of Ruiz's films, is like, I need to find a reason to care. And I don't mean by like, I need to be involved with the characters. Mm-hmm. But if it's something where anything can happen, then like, it doesn't mean anything. And sometimes when I watch his movies, I get that sense mm-hmm. where I'm like waiting. City of Pirates is the one that gets recommended all the time because it's the one where it's like, just wait 30 seconds. There's another crazy image around the corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some of his other ones, like I watched um, an English language one, he did The Territory, which is like essentially Alive, the movie where like, um, the people crash an airplane and then they eat one of each other, except in this version, it's characters lost in a forest and then they eat one of each other because they just can't get out of this forest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, in that one, what the worst part was, was that it did have a kind of narrative and the characters were so unlikable that you're like, oh, I'm trapped with them for a hundred minutes. <laughs> well, I would say with City of Pirates, I did feel very strongly during mm-hmm. the movie. I mean, there are emotions the movie ev- evokes of, you know, mourning and loss and even lust. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a general feeling of transgression a- around, particularly in the stuff with the 10-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something sort of disquieting. I mean, a lot of the images are very striking and strange. Like, there's that famous shot where it's like a drawer of... Y- Stuff, food, food that they're pulling out. And, yeah. you know, pulling food out, and then, oh, there's a there's a guy's head in there, mm-hmm. and it's a real person's head. And you can feel in City of Pirates, Ruiz's kind of, like, love with the George Melier, like, what can I pull off on camera? Like, there's that one point that the woman grabs a ring, but it's not a physical object, it's just light that's being, like, beamed oh, onto yeah. the floor, yeah. but, like, goes on her hand, and she pretends that she's wearing it. Yeah, so it's a very kind of overwhelming, sensual Mm -hmm. experience. So to give a little bit of history of Ruiz, so he was in Chile. He most famously got a Rockefeller grant that allowed him to write 100 plays in a couple of years. That was right. That's between 1956 and 1962. Before that, I think he had studied theology and Mm -hmm. law. 
And yeah, a hundred plays. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know how you do that. But then, Did you just pitch it? You're like, hey, give me money. I'm going to write a hundred plays. And so then I guess he wrote enough plays. So mm-hmm. he decided to go to film school. And look, I don't know anything about Chilean cinema, but I have read that a lot of his contemporaries were very political and were very interested in making agitprop mm-hmm. or, or more didactic documentary style films. He was not so much interested in that. The first thing that he tried to make was a very ambitious Daphne du Maurier adaptation, which was never completed. But his key early film was a film called Très Triste Tigres from 1969, which I think you saw, right? I did. It didn't really do much for me. It captures that like Chilean place right before it switched over to the dictatorship that it would have. Mm-hmm. But it's still, I think that he's trying to figure out his style. It's very new wavy. And in interviews, mm-hmm. he would say stuff like, I wanted to make a movie where it seemed like there was a story, but there was no story. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh God. <laughs> well, yeah. it, it did win at Locarno. Mm-hmm. So I assume that set his career in motion. He worked in Chilean TV. And then... There was the coup in 73, he moved in 74, and according to Jonathan Rosenbaum, the period from 1975 to 1997, where he was based mostly in Paris, was his peak productivity and you know, the greatest artistic flowering because that's when he was free working in largely like public television. So he didn't have to worry about audiences. So what was great about that period is that places like in France and Germany is that they would have these kind of grants that they would have to give out to fill television slots. Mm -hmm. And Ruiz became the go-to guy for that. Now, he would never really deliver what people wanted. A lot of his stuff didn't even air, but I think there was kind of that sense of importance and artiness to it that he kept getting hired. They kept giving him projects to do. So why don't we talk about the hypothesis of the stolen painting from 1979. A a trim 66 minutes long. It's uh, last year at Marion Bad meets F for Fake. Yeah, and it's about a um, art historian that he just explains to us um, why this set of paintings are a set and that the mystery of them can never be solved because one of the paintings is missing. The fourth out of seven. Mm -hmm. And to try to solve the mystery, he, in this... 18th or 19th century house you know a a big beautiful mansion shot in like black and white in full screen I'm assuming it was probably um, going to air on television he brings a bunch of actors to enact the tableaus of these paintings and hopefully this this hard historian can in this three dimensional setting show you things that you couldn't see in the paintings themselves like oh look at this shaft of light yeah he can turn the lights on he can turn them off he can and it's amazing because like Ruiz is constantly like breaking the fourth wall like the people that are recreating the painting will wander off in the shot and then we'll be like no no get back get back in position They're like oh, okay and he's always talking to this uh, unseen narrator who's questioning him also for, interrupting and correcting him every now and then right so uh, yeah i mean i again i was watching this stupid me <laughs> very dumb not having read up on it thinking oh this is a very playful art documentary about this set of paintings i've never heard of mm-hmm. uh, nope <laughs> no. it is completely fictional and i think that why this film is so important i think why it's the one that people kind of point to when they go oh you know you want to explore ruiz start with this one is that it's almost like 
the thesis of his movies, which is that you will never be able to solve them. Maybe you will be able to find things. Like I watch a documentary on Ruiz and they'd be like, oh, this is actually from his childhood. That's why he keeps going back to this. Mm -hmm. But in the middle of it, there'll be something missing and you'll never be able to put it together. Like this is not a kind of fine clockwork machine that every piece was thought out perfectly to mess with each other. No, sometimes it's just like an emotional reaction to something or an image that he wanted to put on screen. Well, and also this particular film is dense with literary allusions. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, there's uh, a French writer, Pierre Klosowski, uh, who I'm unfamiliar with. (laughs) Fictional? Uh, uh, (laughs) Well, how ridiculous I am. Well, there's this amazing part where the uh, art collector, the main character, uh, describes this entire plot of this book mm-hmm. and how and, it relates to these paintings. And I'm trying to follow along, <laughs> but it, you're not. That's the trick is that like you can't follow like, along. Yeah, yeah, it's I so can't. complicated. Because yeah. <laughs> he's like, why was this picture an outrage? It is just a picture of a family. Let me explain by going through this novel. But like, what's amazing is that the end of that hour long movie, like at the end, the guy's like, well, was this worth it? Yeah. Spending all my time doing this? He's like. I don't know. I feel kind of alone in this giant house. <laughs> I feel this way sometimes when I read, like, uh, you know, for Jean-Luc Godard's Histoire du Cinema mm-hmm. or some really dense work like that. You can, of course, read books and essays that... Like, decoding it. That decode it. But then at the end... It, like, did I get anything more I, out of it? <laughs> I feel a little empty inside. Yeah. yeah. I love, like, <sighs> this art historian is like, explaining it. And at one point, he just kind of, like, falls asleep. <laughs> and then the narrator, like, whispers over him the continuing information. That's like that playful side of Ruiz that when he's firing on all cylinders, I just love. I feel a bit like I have to reteach myself how to watch a movie when I watch his movies because Mm. there are certain expectations that I have in movies. An expectation that this scene is going to lead to the next scene Mm -hmm. is going to lead to the next scene. Oftentimes that there's going to be a three act structure. Yeah. Or or climax of some sort that will maybe clarify what has come before. In Rosenbaum's or one of Rosenbaum's essays, he quotes from Raoul Ruiz's 1995 book, Poetics of Cinema. Oh my God. What a dense book. I've tried to read it. (laughs) Well, so here's a paragraph. Yeah. uh, And I'm not going to bother with the rest of it. Uh, Ruiz wrote, America is the only place in the world where, very early, cinema developed an all-encompassing narrative and dramatic theory known as central conflict theory. 30 or 40 years ago, this theory was used by mainstream American industry as a guideline. Now it is the law in most centers of the film industry in the world. And Ruiz would argue that countries other than America, like, like, so in America, according to him, you make decisions and you act on them immediately, and this action causes conflict. At least this is his idea of America. You know, it's a very very kind of, I guess, literal-minded society. Mm -hmm. And even though other countries are not America, even though other countries may think about things differently, they have still adopted this model because the American film industry is so strong and dominant. I mean, Ruiz liked to say that, like, his movies were also... It's not about the movie that you're watching. It's the possibilities of all the movies that it could be. From shot to shot, it could splinter in a thousand directions. So he is not dictating what the movie has to be. He's letting the viewer fill in the gaps of the movie with their own experiences and their own beliefs. Which means that there is never a time where you can instantly have the right movie that he was making. Mm. He is consciously making a movie that is going to be different for everyone because there are no links between the parts. This is another reason why I actually feel a little underqualified to be talking about this because there are a lot of great filmmakers who you live with and you grow with. Mm -hmm. I can imagine City of Pirates is something that in years to come will live on in my memory. (laughs) And you're like, I figured it out! 
<laughs> well, I'm not necessarily figured it out, but it will become more like a place that I return to. I don't know. We'll see. I hope so. You know, I watched one of the miniseries he did, Manuel and the Island of Wonders, which came out in 1984. And what was fascinating about that was that it was actually meant for children. It was like a three-part miniseries, an hour each part. And it had more of a conventional structure than most of his things. A kid decides to skip school. And in the process, he meets the 13-year-old version of himself, which is four years older than him. And then that 13-year-old tells him the story of what happened to him, how to get to that point. And it is terrifying because the whole hour-long movie is about the choices that you make, even if you think it's the right one and you're warned by your future self, can still lead to a different fatalistic ending. And it's like, oh my God, this was for children? (laughs) And, you know, that idea of stories within stories is like what I was saying, that he loves the idea of things breaking up and going in a million different directions. I mean, that is especially prevalent in his later day films. And he's one of the rare filmmakers that he kind of blossomed, uh, you know, in the 80s, in the 90s. It was a little bit weird, like you were saying, he was making William Baldwin movies. Um, He made one kind of American film that he shot in America, and that was a film called The Golden Boat that, like, Jim Jarmusch has a role in. It's shot in English. Uh, It's not considered one of, like his best but it's interesting that he didn't work in America that much because he you know he wasn't really making commercial things but later on in his career he did somehow become a commercial filmmaker that people were giving him millions of dollars to make movies and yeah in the late 90s and in the 2000s he was working with big stars of international art house films yeah so, Catherine Deneuve Marcello Mastroianni mm-hmm. John Malkovich yeah others. John Malkovich his muse in the early 2000s because we both watch one of the films that John Malkovich appears in even though the cover of the uh, movie would make you assume that he is the star of the film, he is not, which was an adaptation, I'm putting that in quotes, of uh, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. Ruiz's version is called Time Regained, because... I've never read the novels, the seven oh, volumes you're kidding. <laughs> yeah, that are composed of Proust's work. But this is supposedly mostly an adaptation of the last volume. Mm-hmm. And because it's an adaptation of the last volume, it allows him to like kind of cherry pick from stuff before to contextualize what you're seeing. Wow, I, thank I God use he, the word contextualize very lightly. Thank God he adapted the last book and not, <laughs> and not the first one. Because, of course, you know, for me, uh, having having read all of them, I was able to just <laughs> skip right to the end. It's like, oh, yeah, all my yeah, I'll get characters. the emotional climax of this movie. Now, this is a movie that, I mean, it's an impossible book to adapt. And the idea of giving it to Ruiz is actually kind of smart, I think, whoever the producers were. Because he is a filmmaker that is known for memory kind of like blurring into each other and identity being all over the place. And he's also done many films with these sort of multi-pronged mm-hmm. narratives. It, for example, there's a film he made called Love Torn in a Dream, which is nine interweaving stories, many of the same actors in all those stories, many of them playing multiple characters in yeah. those stories. So, <laughs> so you're like looking at <laughs> and you're like, wait, is this who I think it is? Like, when I was watching uh, Time Regain, many a time I went, wait, is that the same character? They all have the same mustache. I know. It's very confusing. Oh, oh my God. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I had that experience with this movie. So this is a film that is definitely a difficult one because I feel like the book, it reaches an emotional climax and the movie does not. The plot, such as it is, <laughs> the plot. is Marcel Proust is on his deathbed, he's writing the last volume of his memoir, and he's looking at old photos, Yeah, and those photos bring about 
two and a half hours worth of memory. Which is like the premise of the book as well. This mm-hmm. idea of like, oh, you know, this smell will take me back to mm-hmm. this place. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Ruiz kind of nails that as well as it could have been because a lot of times we'll just jump to another scene and you're like, huh? I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, this movie, I have to admit, didn't quite get its tender hooks in mm-hmm. me. I didn't feel... I don't know. I feel like with these memory stories, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I don't know if my memory works this way. Yeah. I didn't feel a strong emotional connection to these you, images. You didn't love that seasick feeling of objects on screen because Ruiz, he's adapting a work. And I feel like this costs $10 million. Yeah. But there's people behind him going, you can't just go crazy. The way that he kind of puts a stamp on it and to give the sense of floating memories is that objects are constantly moving. And the camera is always, always moving, moving. Yeah. For example, there's a piano recital that happens and like the uh, people watching start to like shift from left to right on screen and what it looks like is an optical illusion at first because you go wait is the camera moving and you're Mm -hmm. like wait no it's just the people are moving and then of course characters appear Mm -hmm. sort of at random sometimes they're old sometimes they're young there are so many like you know shifting alliances (laughs) uh, relationships and I'm like wait Charlie (laughs) who's Charlie (laughs) I have okay thank you they were talking about Charlie and I was like wait I thought that that was Marcel. (laughs) John Malkovich speaks very good French in this movie. I know. For for a sec, I thought he might have been dubbed, but no, that's him. Yep. Um, I mean, I gave this one only because I wanted you to get like a taste of what he was moving towards late Mm -hmm. in his career. Because... Well, another thing about this is the early movies Mm. are, you know, very strange and surreal, but this one has a bit of a masterpiece theater look to it. It looks expensive. (laughs) It does. And I had difficulty reconciling that kind of, yeah, like Merchant Ivory Mm -hmm. style with the surreal touches that come in and out. Yeah, it's almost like he wants to put more surreal stuff and they're like, nope. The producer is like, you got to stick to like the story that you're adapting. Like in the other John Malkovich uh, film that Rue has made, Clint, Clint, yeah. who had the famous painter where like a big, I, I'm going to say plot point, but come on, there's no plots in these movies. Is that like John Malkovich, the same woman is being played by different actors and he's always asking her like, are you the real one or mm. are you the fake one? And as an audience member, you're like, I don't even know what's going <laughs> on. It's because the artist is dying from a syphilic, just his brain is rotting and that's what you're seeing on screen. And I think that's the difference between his later period films and his earlier ones. In the later period ones, like, you would have to give like a framing device to like justify what <laughs> you're seeing. <laughs> While before like City of Pirates, he could just go like, this is crazy. The movie that like made me f- want to really explore his filmography It's Mysteries of Lisbon, which is this five and a half hour movie. It was a miniseries that played on Italian television. And a significant kind of art house hit in the 2000s. And I'm going to say it's actually kind of radically different from everything we watch for this episode because it's much more conventional. It's actually almost every scene is like one long virtuosic take. And the gimmick of it is that it's stories within stories within stories, kind of like Sargosa manuscript, Mm -hmm. uh, if anybody has ever seen that uh, Polish film. Mm -hmm. So Ruiz, I know that you only scratched the surface and it left you mostly baffled. Baffled, but not not unintrigued. Yeah, to be like, well, what else could his filmography hold? Mm-hmm. If it makes you feel any better, anyone who's ever watched his movies has been baffled. They're like, there is no one person who's like, yeah, I get it, because uh, that person is lying. I do like him, and I want to know more. Yeah. 
So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And I know we said it last week, but we'll say it this week again, that there's a new uh, Blu-ray from the Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classic Collection available at goldninjavideo.com, and it's Roger Corman, the auteur. That's right. Two classic public domain Roger Corman movies, <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors and The Terror. You get a third bonus film, Ski Troop Attack, a very little scene Roger Corman film from his independent period. Plus audio commentaries. Mm-hmm. It is truly the Criterion Collection of Bargain Bin DVD companies. <laughs> about Roger Corman, especially right. this one. And on our Patreon this week, you can listen to us talk about martial arts film, because what pairs better with Raul Ruiz and a little bit of Kung Fu? We just wanted to talk about favorite Kung Fu movies yeah. this week. Something yeah. easy that we didn't have to work on. But, you know, just just have fun, right? Yeah. And you know what? People are always asking us, and we've answered this question before, of like, what are your favorite martial arts films? I don't know where to start. And it is a genre that is... Interesting in the sense that, like, you could go like, oh, this movie has great fights, but as an overall movie, not so hot. And a lot of those movies are on our list. But to hear those, you'll just have to uh, pay $5 a month and you'll become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And also, I never talk about this but for ten dollars a month you can become an important cinema club newsletter subscriber get a sweet newsletter in the mail every month oh hey uh, while we're at it uh we put out a book at the beginning of the year so (laughs) why why not why not just say that we may have new listeners since then yeah we do have a book a book the important cinema club journal on amazon yeah that's right go buy it wait did i write a book called albert pune that i'm just kidding Actually, no, get Justin's book, too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, much stuff you can buy. Radioactive Dream. We're just a cottage industry. We're opening a storefront, a little <laughs> pop-up shop near you. So come and visit us, and you can buy all of our products. Yeah. Patreon is $5 a month, and for $50 a month, <laughs> you get access to the feed. Like, we set up a webcam in our houses. And <laughs> Only $50 a month? And you get you get to see everything. You can just watch me, like, watch movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, typing at my computer. <laughs> But it's kind of so fuzzy and low grain that you can't really see. It's like kind of blobs, you know, when you were young and you wanted to get those sexy channels at night and you just got static. Well, what could be sexy? Right? <laughs> exactly. The unknown. So what are we doing next week, Will? It's the last of our Around the World Roundup. Mm-hmm. And we are traveling to the country of Turkey. We will be talking about a Turkish actor slash writer, Kunet Arken. And his pronunciation may actually be different than that. Yes. We'll, we'll... we'll try our best. So this is a guy that I feel a lot of people have seen because he stars in the film Turkish Star Wars. Which is not its actual title. No. But that's what it is popularly known. And this is a guy that in Turkey, he starred in so many movies. He has hundreds of credits to his name. Turkey as a popular entertainment cinema is a little bit of a mystery to me. It's kind of like just trash that has slipped through the cracks. What I know of Turkey's sort of popular cinema, mm-hmm. putting aside its art house cinema, its popular cinema is like those foreign ripoffs. Yeah, of like movies. the most bottom barrel where like Spider-Man is a bad guy and he has like a mustache under his mask. Yeah, yeah. Uh, three Dev Adams. So we'll be watching definitely Turkish Star Wars, which I haven't watched in probably like a decade. Probably the same <laughs> for me, too. And you know they made a sequel to that? Yeah, they did it recently. I'm recently. not going to be watching that. Because, yeah. yeah, like an ironic kind of um, Hobgoblins 2 style sequel. Yeah. Um, I mean, this guy did a Turkish Rambo. He did a Turkish Death Wish, Sword in the Claw. Oh, which was I've released. seen Turkish Death Wish. Yeah, Sword in the Claw, which was released by AGFA, American Genre Film Archives, on okay. Blu-ray a few months back. So I'm excited to kind of jump into his world and by extension the world of Turkish cinema so grab your copies of Mondo Macabro and dust them off because I'm sure tons of information we'll talk about is in that book so until next week yep my name's Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening mm-hmm.
Hi, I'm just going to break in for a second here to thank some new Patreon subscribers that we have. So I'd just like to give a very big thank you to Axel Steele, Michael Bradbury, Johnner, Eddie Averill, Mike Wood, Sean Doris, Rick Deckard, Niall Mac Giola Chomgale, Tristan Wheeler, and Matthew Soups. Thank you very much for being Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. And also a reminder to go on Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, and share your favorite episodes on whatever social media platform that you use because it really helps us a lot. And we couldn't keep doing this if people didn't keep spreading the word. So thanks again. And now back to the regular episode. Well, we're in late November of 2019 now, which means that there's a lot of flurry of activity of people making their top 10 lists, not only of the year, but also of the decade. Zodiac. Um, <laughs> no country for, for old men. Uh, I'm definitely a Benjamin Button stan. <laughs> I don't know why I was pretending to write something. No one can see me. <laughs> uh, uh, what are some forgotten movies from the 2000s? Um, uh, Monster. Yeah. Uh, Monster's Ball. <laughs> That's right. There's the 2000. We're in the 2010s because we're going to the 2020, baby. That's right. And... I found it very amusing to watch people who have been working really hard on the top ten lists. It's like it's like God, you know, for a month I've been I've been trying to assemble it and trying to get it boiled down and trying to make sure I don't leave anything out. And I think that you shouldn't work that hard. No, I mean we have this kind of conversation. I feel every time we do our best of episode, which is that. For me, lists are often kind of um, delivery mechanisms with, have you not heard of this movie? This was one of my favorite of the year. Mm -hmm. Because other than that, all those lists kind of look the same. Mm -hmm. And they're treated as like, how could you not include this movie? Mm -hmm. And it's like, uh, I don't know, because everybody already knows it. You know, it's good. Why don't I need to include it on this? I mean, that's what is so annoying about top 10 lists. Mm -hmm. You know that when the top 10 lists come out for this decade, it's just going to be, oh yeah, Mad Max Fury Road, yeah. Tony Erdman. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> no, Tony Erdman is on lists? People uh, still remember Tony Erdman? <laughs> uh, buddy, people are going to need a female filmmaker for their lists. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, it's going to be on a lot of lists. <laughs> you think so? I think so. Uh, yeah, there's still I don't know. Something. The Master. I mean, I, I'm not... I'm like, The Mask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can retroactively be added on the best of 2010. Yeah, The Master. People are going to be working so hard to get their lists of mm -hmm. the same list. So you're queuing this up because we're going to do a best of the decade list. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, we will. But, like, how do you approach it? Thank God for Letterboxd. I can actually, like, look at what I saw and what I like. Well, I have been thinking about my list, and I think that I'm going to approach it less as, like a best of and more just like what are the movies that have been rattling around in my head what are mm -hmm. the ones that have sort of defined the decade or showed me something new this decade yeah so like there have been movies that i ranked as no number one of the year mm -hmm. which <laughs> will not be anywhere on that list won't be on the list not because Ugh. i don't think they're great but just because it's like i don't uh, know like they don't define the decade for me have you looked at like as we go through our years and we have our top 10 list and you look at the list of movies you're like why did i put that on there <laughs> Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm trying to think of like some top ones that I can. Ah, nothing comes to mind right now, but I'm sure if we looked at there, it. Uh, every year, there are always a couple that are like, they seem like a big deal at the time. Yes. And that you put on it as well because you're like, I just saw it. It's important. Yeah. Well, last time you watched Phantom Thread, Will. Well, great I, movie. Here's the thing is, I, I actually like Phantom Thread. I like a lot. Phantom yeah. Thread as well. 
There, I think that may have been my number one that year. One of the stranger things I've put on a top 10 list was, I think in 2013 or 2014, I put on that movie where Robert Redford was on the boat, All is Lost. You did not. I did, yeah. Wait, well, you weren't doing it with me, were you? I Probably not yet. No, no. I don't think at that point. I think it was just on David You're Davidson's. like, Robert Redford's last film, <laughs> or was he saying no, because Old Man and the Gun was. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I was just impressed by that movie at the time, but like... Never saw it. <laughs> How many times have I thought about it since? <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's a good strategy of like, what have you thought about the most since yeah. you've seen it? Yeah, I don't know what's going to be on that list. I'm going to have to work hard on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not definitely not because stuff that makes my best of list. I can't usually just like look at my shelf and it'll be there because I'm like, ah, it's great. Don't need that movie. The other thing is when people work really hard and mm. make themselves sweat assembling their top 10 list, you get the sense that they want it to be definitive. Yes. And it's not going to be definitive. It can't be. <laughs> it's, it's just like how you're feeling at that particular moment. Mm. My best of the decade list probably would have been different five years ago. Even though that Will set a title, he's like, I'm going to put this on my list. I was like, oh, I want to put that on my list too. But now I can't because it's on yours. No, no, no. The only reason I told you that title was because I thought that it might be the one that overlapped. Oh, that, okay. So, yes, I, yes, yes. so this is my way of giving you permission to put it on. I'm curious of like, how many do you think will overlap between me and you? Is there Are there bets over under or people, is that how you make bets? <laughs> you know what? Probably not a lot, mm-hmm. but... Uh, there might be uh, one or two. And Wait, that, and that does... are all the Marvel films going to fit on my list? <laughs> Force Awakens! Well, you've got to have a lot of ties, right? Yeah, you can fit right. 22 in as long as there are like a bunch of two Can you do ties? Because you're like, oh, what? I can't pick which Captain America I want to put on there. I think ties is a cheat. It is a cheat, even though that... <laughs> even though uh, I've done it before. On the top five list that I was about to do. Yeah, because didn't you have one last year? It was like personal problems and... And the other side of the wind. Yeah. Oh, but I a... don't... I... First of all, those two movies are a cheat anyway. They are Cheap, but you know that makes thematic sense that why you would include them exactly. like that yeah okay so you're right on that one a but. bigger cheat was when i had the mule in the 1517 to paris tie oh yeah you can't do I that i mean that is an actual cheat and i sort of regret that so right here which one would you pick 1517 to paris of course <laughs> yeah i know that's what you would pick <laughs> that is the more dynamic and strong one right the one where he's taking chances by phoning it in so if we're talking about what oh, are is that gonna be on your list well i don't want to spoil anything oh! but there's it, definitely going to be a Clint Eastwood on let's there. Let's just say it's a contender. Mm. And, and it's a contender because has it rattled around in my head? Has it changed the way I think about movies? To some extent, yes. But you may have talked a little bit more about American Sniper than... Uh... Well, I don't like that one as much. I know. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to go with the ones that you like. Well, yeah. That's you know what I'm going to say, Will? I'm going to watch that movie. Before we, to Paris? before we record that episode. And you're going to watch it with a chip on your shoulder yeah. so that you can shame me. <laughs> No, no, no. I want to feel that mumblecore Clint Eastwood feel oh, going in. So. I hope you like it. Yeah, I'm going to go in. All right, now I'm excited for this episode. So, I mean, tune in. It's going to come soon.